0: hello and welcome back to beekeeping at five apple farm this is episode 20 and i'm doing it quick on the heels of episode 19 just because i've promised for several weeks to read you this wonderful article by tom seeley who is um you probably know tom seeley but he is one of the world's foremost researchers of wild bees of wild honeybees i should say um or feral honeybees depending on how you look at it Uh, bees living on their own without human intervention out in the trees and forests and so many of potentially the things that could help us with the problems that uh, managed bees are having might be found in what wild bees are doing and he has been researching this he's one of the few people who's ever who who has the longitudinal um, data. He's been studying the same forest up in New York State for, I don't know, 30 years or so. He's really fascinating. So look up Thomas Seeley, S-E-E-L-E-Y. He's at Cornell University. And um, this article is available online at the National... Uh, I'm sorry the natural beekeeping trust which is where I found it it might be available other areas and it's also kind of um sounds like a preview of his book that's about to come out this year in 2019 he of course is the author of honeybee democracy but the the I have a particular interest in the book that's coming out because he talks about his concept of darwinian beekeeping and by that it's it's wh- what we can learn from the natural selection and the natural systems that the bees are doing out on their own out in the wild and the lessons that we can take and apply them to our um, kept bees all right so this is darwinian beekeeping an evolutionary approach to apiculture by thomas seeley it says this article first appeared in american bee journal march 2017 and it's reproduced at the natural beekeeping trust i'll put the link in the show notes Here's Thomas Seeley. Evolution by natural selection is a foundational concept for understanding the biology of honeybees, but it has rarely been used to provide insights into the craft of beekeeping. This is unfortunate because solutions to the problems of beekeeping and bee health may come more rapidly if we are as attuned to the biologist Charles Charles Darwin as we are to the Reverend Langstroth. Adopting an evolutionary perspective on beekeeping may lead to better understanding about the maladies of our bees and ultimately improve our beekeeping and the pleasure we get from bees. An imp- period. <laughs> an important first step toward developing a Darwinian perspective on beekeeping is to recognize that honeybees have a stunningly long evolutionary history evident from the fossil record. One of the most beautiful of all insect fossils is that of a, of a worker honeybee in the species Apis henshoi, discovered in a 30 million year old shales from Germany. There also exist superb fossils of our modern honeybee species Apis mellifera in amber-like materials collected in East Africa that are about 1.6 million years old. We know, therefore, that honeybee colonies have experienced millions of years being shaped by the relentless operation of natural selection. Natural selection maximizes the ability of living systems, such as honeybee colonies, to pass on their genes to future generations. Colonies differ in their genes. Therefore, colonies differ in all the traits that have a genetic basis, including colony defensiveness, vigor in foraging and resistance to to diseases. The colonies best endowed with genes favoring colony survival and reproduction in their locale have the highest success in passing their genes on to subsequent generations, so over time the colonies in a region become well adapted to their environment. The process of adaptation by natural selection produced the differences in worker bee color, morphology, and behavior that distinguish the 27 subspecies of Apis mellifera that live within the species' original range of Europe, Western Asia, and Africa. The colonies in each subspecies are precisely adapted to the climate season, the flora, predators, and diseases in their region of the world. Moreover, within the geographical range of each subspecies, natural selection produced ecotypes which are finely tuned, locally adapted populations. For example, one ecotype of the subspecies Apis mellifera mellifera evolved in the Landes region of southwest France, with its biology tightly linked to the massive bloom of heather in August and September. Colonies native to this region have a, sm- a strong peak of brood rearing in August. This is a second brood rearing peak that helps them exploit this heather bloom. Experiments have shown that the curious annual brood cycle of colonies in the Landes region is an adaptive, genetically based trait. Modern humans, Homo sapiens, are a recent evolutionary innovation compared to honeybees. We arose some 150,000 years ago in the Africa savannas, where honeybees had already been living for eons. The earliest humans were hunter-gatherers who hunted honeybees for their honey, the most delicious of all natural foods. We certainly see an appetite for honey in one hunter-gatherer people still in existence, the Hadza of northern Tanzania. Hadza men spend four to five hours a day in bee hunting, and honey is their favorite food. Bee hunting began to be superseded by beekeeping some 10,000 years ago, when people in several cultures started farming and began domesticating plants and animals. Two regions where this transformation in human history occurred are the alluvial plains of Mesopotamia and the Nile Delta. In both places, ancient hive beekeeping has been documented by archaeologists. Both are within the original distribution of Apis mellifera, and both have open habitats where swarms seeking a nest site probably had difficulty finding natural cavities and occupied the clay pots and grass baskets of the early farmers. In Egypt's Sun Temple, there is a stone bas-relief 4,400 years old that shows a beekeeper kneeling by a stack of nine cylindrical clay hives. I apologize for all the things I'm mispronouncing in this, but I'm doing the best I can. I hope it'll be okay. This is the earliest indication of hive beekeeping, and it marks the start of our search for an optimal system of beekeeping. It also marks the start of managed colonies living in circumstances that differ markedly from the environment in which they evolved and to which they were adapted. Notice, for example, how the colonies depicted in the Egyptian bas-relief live crowded together rather than spaced widely across the land. So see, I I looked up how to pronounce bas-relief. It's not bas-relief, it's bas-relief. Okay, (laughs) back to the article. Alright, Wild Colonies versus Managed Colonies. Today there are considerable differences between the environment of evolutionary adaptation that shaped the biology of wild honeybee colonies and the current circumstances of managed honeybee colonies. Wild and managed live under different conditions because we beekeepers, like all farmers, modify the environments in which our livestock live to boost their productivity. Unfortunately, these changes in the living conditions of agricultural animals often make them more prone to pests and pathogens. In Table 1, I list 20 ways in which living conditions of honeybees differ between wild and managed colonies, and I am sure you can think of still more. So i'm going to read these differences and then i want you to hang in here because at the very end of this article he has suggestions to think about how we might use this knowledge to help our managed colonies okay back to tom seeley difference one colonies are versus are not genetically adapted to their locations each of the subspecies of apis mellifera was adapted to the climate and flora of its geographic range and each ecotype within a subspecies was adapted to a particular environment. Shipping mated queens and moving colonies long distances for migratory beekeeping forces colonies to live where they may be poorly suited. A recent large-scale experiment conducted in Europe found that colonies with queens of local origin lived longer than colonies with queens of non-local origin and he has the references to all of these things at the end difference two: colonies live widely spaced across the landscape versus crowded into apiaries this difference makes beekeeping practical but it also creates a fundamental change in the ecology of honeybees Crowded colonies experience greater competition for forage, greater risk of being robbed, and greater problems reproducing, for example, swarms combining and queens entering the wrong hive after mating. Probably the most harmful consequence of crowding colonies, though, is boosting pathogen and parasite transmission between colonies. This facilitation of disease transmission boosts the incidence of disease, and keeps alive the virulent strains of the bees disease agents. Difference 3. Colonies live in relatively small nest cavities versus large hives. This difference also profoundly changes the ecology of honeybees. Colonies in large hives have the space to store huge honey crops, but they also swarm less because they are not as space limited which weakens natural selection for strong healthy colonies since fewer colonies reproduce. Colonies kept in large hives also suffer greater problems with brood parasites such as Varroa. Difference four, colonies live with versus without a nest envelope of antimicrobial plant resin or propolis. Living without a propolis envelope increases the cost of colony defense against pathogens. For example, workers in colonies without a propolis envelope invest more in costly immune system activity, for example the synthesis of antimicrobial peptides relative to workers in colonies with a propolis envelope. Difference 5. Colonies have thick versus thin nest cavity walls. This creates a difference in the energetic cost of colony thermal regulation, especially in cold climates. The rate of heat loss for a wild colony living in a typical tree cavity is four to seven times lower than for a managed colony living in a standard wooden hive. Difference six: Colonies live with high and small versus low and large entrances. This difference renders managed colonies more vulnerable to robbing and predation. Large entrances are harder to guard, and it may lower their winter survival. Low entrances can get blocked with snow, preventing cleansing flights. Difference 7. Colonies live with versus without plentiful drone comb. Inhibiting colonies from rearing drones boosts their honey production and slows reproduction by varroa but it also hampers natural selection for colony health by preventing the healthiest colonies from passing on their genes via drones the most successfully. Difference eight, colonies live with versus without a stable nest organization. Disruptions of nest organization for beekeeping may hinder the colony's functioning. In nature, honeybee colonies organize their nest in a precise 3D organization, compact brood nests surrounded by pollen stores and honey stored above. Beekeeping practices that modify the nest organization such as inserting empty comb to reduce congestion in the brood nest can hamper thermoregulation and may disrupt other aspects of colony functioning such as egg laying by the queen and pollen storage by foragers. I want to pause here just a minute. I I just want to point out that he is just clearly laying out what are the differences between wild and managed colonies. This doesn't mean that every aspect of management can be eliminated. I mean if we are then let's just let them live in the trees if we're going to eliminate all management. But through examining these differences and really laying them out um, we can examine what we can mimic in the wild systems that are working better Than our managed systems. So I just wanted to make sure that just because it's different doesn't mean it can be eliminated or that it can't be made better. So that was just a side note by Lee. Now back to Tom Seeley. Difference number nine colonies experience infrequent versus sometimes frequent relocation. Whenever a colony is moved to a new location, as in migratory beekeeping, the foragers must relearn the landmarks around their hive and must discover new sources of nectar, pollen, and water. One study found that colonies moved overnight to a new location had smaller weight gains in the week following the move relative to colonies already living in a location. Difference 10. Colonies are rarely versus frequently disturbed. We do not know how frequently wild colonies experience disturbances like bear attacks, and it's probably rarer for rarer than for managed colonies whose nests are easily cracked open, smoked, and manipulated. In one experience, Ta- experiment, Tabor compared the weight gains of colonies that were and were not inspected during a honey flow and found that colonies that were inspected gained 20 to 30% less weight depending on the extent of the disturbance, then colonies then control colonies on the day of the inspections, who were obviously not inspected. Difference eleven. Colonies do not versus do deal with novel diseases. Historically, honeybee colonies dealt only with the parasites and pathogens with whom they had long been in an arms race. Therefore they had evolved means of surviving with their agents of disease. We humans changed all that when we triggered the global spread of the ectoparasitic mite Varroa destructor from Eastern Asia, small hive beetle from Sub Saharan Africa, and chalk boot fungus and acarine mite from Europe. The spread of Varroa alone has resulted in the death of millions of ho- honeybee colonies. Difference 12 Colonies have diverse versus homogeneous food sources. Some managed colonies are placed in agricultural ecosystems, for example, huge almond orchards, orchards, or vast fields of oilseed rape, where they experience low diversity pollen diets and poorer nutrition. The effects of pollen diversity were studied by comparing nurse bees given diets with monofloral pollens or polyfloral pollens. Bees fed the polyfloral pollen lived longer than those fed the monofloral pollen. Difference 13. Colonies have natural diets versus sometimes being fed artificial diets. Some beekeepers feed their colonies protein supplements, pollen substitutes, to stimulate colony growth before pollen is available, to fulfill pollination contracts, and produce larger honey crops. The best pollen supplements/slash substitutes do stimulate brood rearing, though not as well as re- real pollen, and may result in workers of poorer quality. Difference 14: Colonies are not versus are exposed to novel toxins. The most important new toxins of honeybees are insecticides and fungicides. Substances for which the bees have not had time to evolve detoxification mechanisms. Honeybees are now exposed to an ever-increasing list of pesticides and fungicides that can synergize to cause harm to bees. Difference 15. Colonies are not versus are treated for diseases. When we treat our colonies for diseases, we interfere with the host parasite arms race between Apis mellifera and its pathogens and parasites. Specifically, we weaken natural selection for disease resistance. It's no surprise that most managed colonies in North America and Europe possess little resistance to Varroa mites, or that there are populations of wild colonies on both continents that have evolved strong resistance to these mites. Treating colonies with miticides and antibiotics may also interfere with the microbiomes of the colonies bees or their gut microbes. Difference 16. Colonies are not versus are managed as sources of pollen and honey. Colonies managed for honey production are housed in large hives so they are more productive. However, they're also less apt to reproduce, swarm, so there's less scope for natural selection for healthy colonies also the vast quantity of brood in large hive colonies renders them vulnerable to population explosions of varroa mites and other disease agents that reproduce in brood difference 17 colonies do not versus do suffer losses of beeswax removing beeswax from a colony imposes a serious energetic burden The weight-to-weight efficiency of beeswax synthesis from sugar is at best 0.10, so every pound of wax taken from a colony costs it about 10 pounds of honey that is not available for other purposes such as winter survival. The most energetically burdensome way of harvesting honey is to remove entire combs filled with honey like cut comb honey and crushed comb honey. It is less burdensome to produce extracted honey since this just removes the capping wax. Difference 18. Colonies are versus are not choosing the larvae used for rearing queens. When we graft Dale larvae into artificial queen cups during queen rearing, we prevent the bees from choosing which larvae will develop into queens. One study found that in emergency queen rearing, the bees do not choose larvae at random and instead favor those of certain patrilines. Difference 19. Drones are versus are not allowed to compete fiercely for mating. In bee breeding programs that use artificial insemination, the drones that provide sperm do not have to prove their vigor by competing amongst other drones for mating. This weakens the sexual selection for drones that possess genes for health and strength. Difference 20. Drone brood is not versus is removed from colonies for mite control. The practice of removing drone brood from colonies to control varroa partially castrates colonies and so interferes with natural selection for colonies that are healthy enough to invest heavily in drone production all right so he's got the whole list of 20 differences between wild and managed colonies and um, so from that he extrapolates some suggestions for darwinian beekeeping so those were the differences you know not necessarily good or bad but just fact and so here is some of his potential suggestions to think about how we can use those um, lessons we learn from wild colonies if and where we can manage colonies. Suggestions for Darwinian beekeeping Beekeeping looks different from an evolutionary perspective. We see that colonies of honeybees lived independently from humans for millions of years and during this time they were shaped by natural selection to be skilled at surviving and reproducing wherever they lived in Europe, Western Asia, or Africa. We also see that ever since humans started keeping bees in hives, we have been disrupting that exquisite fit that once existed between honeybee colonies and their environments. We've done this in two ways. One, by moving colonies to geographical locations to which they are not well adapted. And two, by managing colonies in ways that interfere with their lives, but that provide us with honey, beeswax, propolis, pollen, royal jelly, and pollination services. What can we do as beekeepers to help honey bee colonies live with a better fit to their environment and thereby live with less stress and better health? The answer to this question depends greatly on how many colonies you manage and what you want from your bees. A beekeeper who has a few colonies and lower expectations for honey crops, for example, is in a vastly different situation than a beekeeper who has thousands of colonies and is earning a living through beekeeping. For those interested, I offer 10 suggestions for bee-friendly beekeeping. Some have general application, whereas others are feasible only for the backyard beekeeper. 1. Work with bees that are adapted to your location. For example, if you live in New England, buy queens and nukes produced produced up north rather than queens and packages shipped up from the south. Or if you live in a location where there are few beekeepers, use bait hives to capture swarms from wild colonies living in your area. Incidentally, these swarms will also build you beautiful comb, and this will enable you to retire old comb that could have a heavy load of pesticide residue and pathogen spores, or cells. The key thing is to acquire queens of a stock that is adapted to your climate. 2. Space your hives as widely as possible. Where I live in central New York State, there are vast forests filled with wild honeybee colonies spaced roughly a half mile apart. This is perhaps ideal for wild colonies, but problematic for the beekeeper. Still, spacing colonies just 30 or 50 yards apart in an apiary greatly reduces drifting and thus the spa- spread of disease. And of course, for those of us in areas with that, where we have to have bear fencing um, it's that would be very hard but any distance we can get any distance we can get between our hives is gonna be good so just as much distance as you possibly can three house your hives Oh, sorry house your bees in small hives consider using just one deep hive body for a brood nest and one medium-depth super over a queen excluder for honey you won't harvest as much honey but you will likely have reduced and reduced disease and pest problems particularly varroa and yes your colonies will swarm but swarming is natural and research shows that it promotes colony health by keeping varroa mite populations at safe levels i want to jump in here this is lee <laughs> i can't i can't help myself but i would perhaps ask you to consider instead of forcing your colonies to swarm. If you live in a populated area, swarms can cause problems. If you've got a lot of humans living around you, swarms can cause problems. Now, I live way out in the woods, so if I have a lot of swarms, um, you know, hopefully they go into the woods and not my neighbor's houses and um, build their colonies. Um, But even then, if I want to uh, keep more bees in order, for example, to share them with local beekeepers, then remember that splitting is simply inducing a swarm Um, it's not as good but it accomplishes a lot of the same things in terms of limiting reducing disease and pests okay sorry that's my little testimonial now i'm back to tom seeley number four roughen the inner walls of your hives or build them of rough sawn lumber This will stimulate your colonies to coat the interior surfaces of their hives with propolis, therefore creating antimicrobial envelopes around their nest. 5. Use hives whose walls provide good insulation. These might be hives built of thick lumber, or they might be hives made of plastic foam. We urgently need research on how much insulation is best for colonies in different climates and how it is best provided. 6. Position hives off the ground. This is not always doable, but if you have a porch or a deck where you can position some hives, then perhaps it's feasible. We urgently need research on how much entrance height is best in different climates. 7. Let 10-20% to of the comb in your hive be drone comb. Giving your colonies the opportunity to rear drones can help improve the genetics in your areas. Drones are costly to a colony, so it is only the strongest and healthiest that can afford to produce lesions of drones. Unfortunately, drone brood often fosters rapid growth of a colony's population of varroa mites. So providing plentiful drone comb requires careful monitoring of the varroa level in these hives. See suggestion 10 below. Eight. Minimize disturbances of nest organization. When working a colony, replace each frame in its original position and orientation. Also, avoid inserting empty frames in the brood nest to inhibit swarming. I would say, (laughs) again, this is like, you know, with that, um, it definitely interferes with the thermoregulation of a small hive. However, if you have a large hive, inducing you know, putting in those empty frames... Um, at least in my experience it does not upset the bees because there are so many bees in the larger hives so that's one of those things that if you're using a larger hive is a little bit different than if you're practicing this small hive beekeeping back to the article number nine minimize relocation of hives move colonies as rarely as possible if you must do so do so when there is little forage available I guess he means just move them if they don't have forage in their area and you're moving them to better forage. I think that's what that means. 10. Here's the controversial one. (laughs) 10. And hopefully his book will go into more depth. Refrain from treating colonies for Varroa. Warning. This is in all caps. Warning. This last suggestion should only be adopted if you can do so carefully as part of a program of extremely diligent beekeeping if you pursue treatment free beekeeping without close attention to your colonies then you will create a situation in which your apiary in your apiary in which natural selection is favoring virulent varroa mites not varroa resistant bees to help natural selection favor varroa resistant bees you will need to monitor closely the mite levels in all your colonies and kill those whose mite populations are skyrocketing long before these colonies can collapse. By preemptively killing your Varroa susceptible colonies, you will accomplish two important things. One, you will eliminate your colonies that lack Varroa resistance, and two, you will prevent the mite bomb phenomenon of mites spreading en masse to your other colonies. If you don't perform these preemptive killings, Then, even your most resistant colonies could become overrun with mites and die, which means there will be no natural selection for mite resistant in your apiary. Failure to perform preemptive killings can also spread virulent mites to your neighbor's colonies and even the wild colonies in your area that are slowly evolving resistance on their own. If you're not willing to kill, Mite susceptible colonies, then you will need to treat and requeen them with a queen of mite resistant stock. Now, there's an editor uh, editor's note here: the Natural Beekeeping Trust does not endorse preemptive killing of colonies experience in a variety of geographical regions with established large-scale treatment-free honeybees populations indicates that a practice deserves the utmost consideration. Not only has it been shown in many localities that it is unnecessary, it also prevents exposure of the population concerned to the true pressures of natural selection. And they have a link for more um, things. Now, I will also jump in here. Um, so far, knocking on wood here. I have never had to kill a colony even when they were showing signs of uh, showing si- early signs of succumbing to mites. That's because as you've heard over and over, I keep a close eye on my bees. That is part of my practice is to keep a close eye and at the first sign that colonies are not winning against their mites. And by that I mean a bad uh, brood pattern that shows they're having um, mite problems, or if I see deformed wing virus, like even two bees with deformed wing virus, or any of the signs that mites are going on too heavily in that colony, then as you've heard, uh, what I do is um, I will requeen that colony if it's early. If it's too late, if it's late, I might cull every bit of, of capped brood from that colony, and then, as soon as the open brood is capped, I might cull every bit of that. Obviously, I've removed the queen, and so basically, I've gotten, I've trapped every mite that I can get a hold of in the capped brood, and removed and destroyed the capped brood. And by that, I just stick it in the freezer, and then, uh, and then cut it out of the um, frame, or just throw the frame away, depending on circumstances. Um, so that's my most extreme, uh, you know, killing of uh, mites on bees um, so far I would not hesitate in that case again in my opinion there's no need to kill that colony once they've shown a lack of resistance I would happily treat with an organic treatment to clean up that colony and then requeen with a queen that has shown more mite resistance. So this is, a, like the editors, um, I disagree that this is necessary because I just don't feel like we need to lose that whole colony. We just need to lose the genetics in that colony and to lose the mites in that colony and so that requires two actions one getting rid of the mites by whatever means necessary and two requeening with better genetics so that's um like the editor i i don't see that as as necessary all right back to the article two hopes I hope you found it useful to think about beekeeping from an evolutionary perspective. If you're interested in pursuing beekeeping in a way that is centered less on treating bee colony as a honey factory and more on nurturing the lives of honey bees, I encourage you to consider what I call Darwinian beekeeping. Others call it natural beekeeping, apocentric beekeeping, or bee-friendly beekeeping. Whatever its name, its practitioners view a honeybee colony as a complex bundle of adaptations shaped by natural selection to maximize a colony's survival and reproduction in competition with other colonies and other organisms, like predators, parasites, and pathogens. It seeks to foster colony health by letting the bees live as naturally as possible so they can make full use of the toolkit of adaptations they have acquired over the last thirty million years much remains to be learned about this tool kit. How exactly do colonies benefit from better nest insulation? Do colonies tightly seal their nests with propolis in autumn to have an in-hive water supply condensation over winter? How exactly do colonies benefit from having a high nest entrance? The methods of Darwinian beekeeping are still being developed, but fortunately apicultural research is starting to develop this perspective. I'm sorry, starting to embrace this perspective. I hope, too, that you will consider giving Darwinian beekeeping a try, for you might find it more enjoyable than conventional beekeeping, especially if you're a small scale beekeeper. Everything is done with bee friendly intentions and in ways that harmonize with the natural history of Apis mellifera. As someone who has devoted his scientific career to investigating the marvelous inner workings of honeybee colonies, It saddens me how profoundly and ever increasingly conventional beekeeping disrupts and endangers the lives of colonies. Darwinian beekeeping, which integrates respecting the bees and using them for practical purposes, seems to me like a good way for responsible beekeepers to keep these small creatures our greatest friends among the insects. I thank Mark Winston and David Peck for many valuable suggestions and improved early drafts of this article. So again, that was reading from an article called Darwinian Beekeeping by Tom Seely. It's published online at the Natural Beekeeping Trust. I will put the link in the show notes. Seeley's got um, a new book coming out in 2019. I do not know the title of it right this minute. Um, and it's going to explore this in more depth. And as you can see, I didn't agree with every single thing, but I do agree that every single of those things needs to be considered and thought out if you are trying to uh, work your bees uh, chemical free or um, by whatever method you do so thanks Um, I know this was not the best reading I've done I will confess I'm in a hurry to get out to the bees but I hope at least it's something to listen to on a rainy day or a boring drive and I really appreciate every single one of you and I appreciate every single one of you trying to do right by the bees thank you so much talk to you later bye